the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Today on the Country Hour, we, well, go into the rescue mission for the world's loneliest sheep. Fiona was dubbed Britain's loneliest sheep and an online petition to rescue her attracted thousands of signatures. On Saturday morning, a team of five farmers led by a former police officer abseiled down a 250-foot rocky gully and used a winch to bring her to safety. Good for them. Good for them indeed. We'll bring you that story coming up. And if that's not your thing, maybe the world's hungriest croc is. It tried to latch on to an NT cattleman. Started walking, took two steps, and the dirty bastard latched onto me. My right foot on the instep, sort of, as I threw a foot forward. And it was a big grab. A big grab. That's coming up on this show for you, as well as plenty of important rural news and information, including just how large our meat exports are at the moment at a time of low prices for producers. All of that and more coming up on the Country Hour right now, though. Emma Field has rural news. Emma. G'day, Warwick. The mayor of King Island hopes dairy giant Saputo can find a good buyer for its King Island dairy facility. The Canadian company will undertake a strategic review of the factory as part of an effort to reduce its Australian operating costs, but will also be investing $27 million in new capital projects across its remaining Victorian and Tasmanian sites. King Island Mayor Marcus Blackie, who has worked at the factory, hopes Saputo finds a buyer which will continue making the branded cheeses at the factory and offer security for the more than 60 workers and a small handful of local farms supplying it. I understand and appreciate the current logistical challenges and corporate challenges that they've got for operating here on King Island Dairy. I understand only too well uh, milk supply issues, not only in Tasmania but around the country. However... In its history, I think King Island Dairy has had seven owners over the years. In more recent decades, it's been National Foods, it's been Lion and Lion Mason, the alcohol uh, booze company, and most recently, Saputo. My, my fervent hope is that the company, as we know it, King Island Dairy, the brand, the recipes and the history can be sold as a going concern to, to someone else who can overcome these current challenges but can see the potential for the brand in the future because all Australians love King Island Dairy cheese. The union representing government meat workers have defended its members' strike action this week. Yesterday, on-plant vets and meat inspectors, who are members of the Community Public Sector Union, took one hour of strike action at the end of their shift, asking for better pay, and they have plans to strike for another hour on Friday. The Australian Meat Industry Council was very critical of the action, saying it's collateral damage in these negotiations between workers and the federal government. CPSU National Secretary Melissa Donnelly says the offer of a 11.2% pay rise over three years is not enough. We think if the meat industry has concerns about the industrial action, they should direct those to the government and the department. The pay rates and the conditions that are on offer uh, for Department of Agriculture workers working in abattoirs already have the potential um, to impact operations. We know that the department is nearly permanently advertising these roles uh, because at the pay rate and the conditions that are on offer right now, they're struggling to fill them. We don't want a long-term problem. We want a solution here that provides a long-term solution for the industry and these workers. And that means being more attractive in, in terms of their pain conditions so they can attract attract and retain employees. 
The early start to harvest for many across South Australia has led to an October record being broken for grain storage company Viterra. More than 925,000 tonnes were delivered to South Australian sites, with the warmer weather contributing to an early and fast start to harvest. Viterra General Manager of Operations, Gavin Canavan, says the grain tally for October is one the company has never seen before. We received over 920,000 tonne of grower deliveries in, in October, which is about 25 to 30% more than we've ever received um, at the end of October. We're thinking harvest, and based on our conversations with growers, is, is around two to four weeks earlier than normal. And grain harvest is well and truly underway across other parts of the country, with grain receivals doubling in the past week. GrainCorp received over half a million tonnes of grain in New South Wales last week. Managing Director of, and CEO of GrainCorp, Robert Spurway, says the grain is coming in fast. As traditionally the harvest moves south across Australia, we'll see volume strengthen. We're looking at pretty strong crops in southern New South Wales and into Victoria and Grain Corp set up for that. It's close to what we'd expect on the forecasts that we've seen from ABARES and in fact in some areas we're seeing slightly stronger than expected yields. In particular, the quality's looking pretty good. So it's been a tough year for growers, particularly in the north of New South Wales, where everyone knows it's been drier. Uh, but central and southern New South Wales, and indeed Victoria, uh, is looking really good. So we're optimistic that's going to be a strong harvest and in the weeks ahead. And Victorian meat regulator PrimeSafe has revealed it has charged Laverton North Abattoir Australian Food Group with two counts of breaching the Meat Industry Act. PrimeSafe launched an investigation earlier in the year into the way the abattoir was dealing with pig kills after an animal activist group released footage of pigs being euthanised. In May this year, the Australian Food Group advised PrimeSafe it intended to cancel its licence to operate as an abattoir. PrimeSafe also said in a statement it's finishing its investigation into the treatment of pigs at a Benella abattoir, CA Sinclair, and the operator will be required to change its work practices and equipment, including the installation of CCTV. And that wraps up Rural News. Thank you very much for that. Emma Field there with Rural News today. Kevin Quick onto the text slip message as well to the country as 0467842722 if you want to send us a text message. Kevin says good afternoon was a really good sound and light show overnight at Myrtleford with seven millimetres of rain just what the garden needed. Have a good weekend. Kevin you're getting in early for the weekend. We've still got Friday's show to do yet as well as the next hour or so of this one. Uh, but the, yeah too right. Huge amount of thunder and lightning over Shepparton last night as well if you've got a rainfall figure or if you'd like to report uh, what any of it did, really, you can send us a text, 0467 842 bogies looked like they were getting a fair bit last night, too. Uh, you can let us know if you're in that part of Victoria. We'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about Victorian produce going to a very different part of the world, though, right now. Two Australian grain farmers are preparing to send their second shipment of wheat to Oman, direct from the paddock to a Middle East flour miller. Barry Large in WA and Andrew Wiedemann in Victoria founded LW Investments several years ago with a view to market and export their own grain. We spoke to them last year after successfully sending a shipment from Victoria. Uh, Sorry, earlier this year, wasn't it? Gosh, getting my dates mixed up. It's so late in the year. They sent their first shipment from Victoria earlier this year. The pair now are gathering another, get this, 35,000 tonnes of wheat to do it all again. Barry Large says consumers in Oman 
want to build relationships with Australian farmers. We'll put together another shipment of about 35,000 tonne. We're a good way through getting our cargo at the moment for this shipment and um, then we'll, we'll, we'll load it like we did last time and guys will run to port and, and we'll get it on the water. So you have that network established where the farmer delivers to the port and it's what's straight onto the boat? Absolutely. And that's where the saving is. And we've developed that. And we've also, um, because Andrew and I being the sort of people we are, our names mean a lot to us. And we've, we had to make sure that we had things in place that people were paid, and including carriers. And we played everyone in five to seven days. And, and we're very proud of that. We're very proud and that we we're able to achieve that. This shipment that you're preparing for, when will it set sail? Oh, it will be early in the new year. And we've bought about maybe 40% so far. We're just waiting as the season goes on to make sure that we um, see what Andrew's production is, of course, which is number one, and and um, the guys that were behind us last year. But it is exciting, and we've been able to take it from paddock to them and, and traceability and everything is um, paramount. We're listening to what they want, trying to um, tailor them, the, the needs to them, and they have a very very good plant in a musket Oman. So we're really trying to give them what they want. So is there that interest in that market that you've you've found in Oman where those consumers want to know more about the Australian farmer who produced this grain that they're buying? Are they interested in fostering that connection? Very much so. And And I think that's the catalyst of the whole show is that they're very keen to start relationships with growers and and we're talking intergenerational too because these people have been around a long time. Can that market get any bigger than one shipment per oh, year, yeah. do you think? No, it definitely will be, yep, yep. Absolutely. Look, it's been baby steps and we've just been going along quietly trying to understand the concept from out of the paddock down to Geelong onto the boat and dealing with things like currency and boats and 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 things that can go wrong we, we're just it's a market that we've been able to um, establish a great relationship with and we just go along quietly and try and supply them what they need and and listen to listen to what they, they've got to tell us what would help make them get a better outturn in their flour mill so how big could it get oh look i Oh, that's that's an interesting question. I've really got. I don't. I don't think it's going to be a million ton market or anything like that. But I know one thing that I look forward to the day that we are able to put some wheat out of Western Australia to there, and they have had wheat from Western Australia in the past. I do look forward to that. I think any market that you can bring into your state or your jurisdiction has got to be good for growers. It's just opportunities present. You are getting ready to send this shipment to Oman. Does the conflict that we're seeing in Gaza factor into your mind around when you're looking at the logistics going into these countries? Absolutely. It's been front and centre to our mind how this affects what goes on on that and we're we're seeking advice with the shipping companies. And and you know what? It's it's a great process and, and the people have been very good along the journey. Andrew and I followed our first shipment over there. We spent a lot of time understanding i do have a new definition of food security in my mind um and when you see how dry it is and that it just doesn't rain we like we're we're 
in a drought at the moment, or maybe that's a bit harsh word to use, but I think it's pretty close to it. We're in a very low rainfall year. Over there, these guys, they don't get any rain and they really depend on buying in their food and, and it really made me think very hard about it. That's WA grain grower and wheat exporter. Private wheat exporter, is that what you call it? Barry Large speaking about his project uh, with Andrew Wiedemann to export their own wheat. Uh, to All about it to Joe Prendergast, our reporter there. Andrew Wiedemann, of course, still involved in legal action against the Victorian Farmers Federation at the moment. We're waiting to hear back from the judge with his decision on that case when we know more. We will tell you more. Speaking of rainfall, though, plenty of texts coming in on that. Robin Chilton had 32 millimetres. The tanks are full, says Rob. You know I love information like that, Rob. Thank you. Neil at Pranjip near Yaroa last night had 12 millimetres. Uh, had a couple of big downpours and got 29 millimetres for Kate at Valencia Creek. Very noisy night in southern New South Wales for Alex at Savanac who had 16 millimetres. And Chris at Penambra, 32 millimetres, says we'll have a good hay season now. Thanks for that information too, Chris, because that leads nicely into our next story. Hay and harvest programs are rolling on with gusto in Victoria as farmers and contractors enjoy favourable work conditions after last year's headaches with the big wet. In fact, I drove... Well, over to Bendigo and down to Seymour on the weekend and there was nearly... No paddocks without tractors rolling in them. It was a very busy weekend of work, and I'd imagine it would have been a busy weekend for Dave Shaka as well from DAS Mechanical at Matoa, who currently has balers working at Rapanyip and Wilker and Headers at uh, Kulongong. I hope I've got that one out correctly. He says it's been relatively smooth so far, and he told Angus all about the season and also the thinking behind hay and harvest contractors in 2023. Yeah, hay program's been travelling pretty well. We battled with cold weather for for a good two weeks, which put us behind, but we haven't really struck any bad weather other than it being fairly windy and cold. It's been fairly, in a way, straightforward. I'd have another one of these years again. And are you close to wrapping up the, the hay side of things now? Yeah, look, another three or four days and we'll have our program all but wrapped up. I mean, a bit of straw in that getting done. It'd be interesting to see what we end up well, the tally we end up at the end. And on the straw side of things, with, well, plenty of straw around, maybe people wanting to, to get rid of it, and as well, there, there could be a, a, possibly a market for it, I suppose, up into New South Wales. So, so do you reckon you will do a bit of straw? I think we will. It's one of those things, like, people back in 2019, we went all fairly gun-ho, and fair few fingers got burned. So, look, I'd say there's more of a, they're more tentative about it than anything, but the way it's looking, like cereal hay is all nearly but committed. Vetch hay looks like it seems to be fairly easy to shift at the moment. I'd say straw will be, yeah, it'll be possibly fairly um, a valuable item. That's the hay side of things, Dave, but harvest as well, you, you, you're into that? Yeah, mate, yeah. So we got going there uh, about seven seven days ago. It's looking very promising with the yields that are coming through. I think with the soft finish and the cool finish, it's um, yeah, going to help, help the yields a lot. Have you got much work booked up ahead of you? Oh, a little bit. It's it's one of those things like last year caught a lot of people off guard with um, how we went from very undercommitted to very overcommitted in the space of uh, less than six weeks. So, no, we, we just booked in what we thought we could handle quite comfortably and um, generally the phone rings at times, you know, people that have the contract hasn't got there yet or, um, you know, 
they've had a breakdown, so we just fill in the gaps that way, really. How about on the, the workforce side of things, Dave? You, you employ a few people to keep your machines going. How have you gone finding workers? Yeah, look, we've been, um, we've been quite lucky and quite unlucky at the same time. Yeah, all our international staff have been absolutely uh, fantastic. You know, even if they aren't enjoying the role that they've signed on for, they've given plenty of notice and given us time to find people. There's definitely a lot more people coming into the country, so finding people is uh, it's a lot easier, but the experience of the staff is probably um, a big one, which, um, you know, you get someone that's a barista that wants to apply for driving a bailer, and it's not quite that simple, but... The star side of thing, we've got a bit, we try and have about six on at once with Harvest, and we gave a few Aussies a go, and and, and it's been it's been quite disappointing with the way well, they sort of handle themselves, and they give us no notice. We had one person last one day, and then just not turn up to work. Putting the comments out there in a Twitter post, it sounds like it's a pretty common thing at, at the moment. And from the contractor's perspective, uh, t- talking the bottom line with, with the way things sit, the cost of running your machines and, and the market rate for charging them out, uh, is there money to be made for you? I think there is money to be made, but it's just, I don't know if it, at the moment it's all with new machinery. It's quite a challenge. Like we talk about this, it's a very common thing to talk about. A brand new X9 John Deere header apparently is anywhere between 1.2 and 1.3 million. And then you talk to the consumer, the farmer, on what they want to pay for one of them, and they're, they're only willing to pay that $800 a rotor hour, and the sums don't stack up. So we're definitely slimming our margins down. I'm doing the exact same to make things work and make things viable. It just means you've got to do it with more scale. So we, we, we probably are having to be a lot more careful with our purchases other than just going, I need a new tractor, let's go buy one. It's um, a lot more consideration's got to go into it. And with your headers, for example, you've got a couple of older model headers, I suppose. Does does that stack up better for you running those than than trying to justify new machines? Well, it sort of does because, well, for us, we don't want to live in them. We we can't with running the balers at the same time. We can't afford to be having machines up in Queensland and running balers in Victoria. I don't have enough people around me to do that. So the way of having the older headers is we can get enough hours from the Northern Mallee into the Wimmera and um, and make a repayment and should make a, you know, a couple of dollars with it. My argument is with the older machines at the moment is that the X9 is 1.3. It's double the capacity of mine, but it's, they're saying it's worth $800 the rotor hour, which it should be about $1,300 the rotor hour. I've got a header that's worth $200,000. i am getting $500 a rotor hour for it. So the, the argument for me is less capital or gross return on it. Yeah, so if you did have those new machines, you'd have to be doing massive hours for, for months on end to justify them? Yeah, that's sort of the feel that I, I get on it. That's When I run the calculator, that's what I come up with. I think it's pushing things too tight, especially not having any of my own crop, like if you had your, if your major run was um, Western Moree this year, by the sound of it, you're not going to be finding a repayment. That's David Shucker there from DAS Mechanical at Matoa speaking with Angus Verley. Really interesting insight into getting return on investment on machines there. You can let us know what you think. Always send us a text. Plenty of rainfall figures coming in on the text line for that. Not all of it good. Not a drop of rain for Ararat. 
Pastures have turned brown and rain not good for the dry pastures, says this text message. Uh, uh, Ron and Axe Creek had three and a half millimetres, uh, 16 and a half millimetres for the last two days for Barry at Kyabram. Uh, also have, wasn't the only, it wasn't only rain that fell from the sky, was it? Hail into Canola, north of Echuca from Marty. Marty, I love that you keep us updated. Oh, that looks shocking. Bit of hail into the Canola. That's not good news for those guys north of Echuca as well. There's been a bit of well, a bit of frost events, a bit of hail events around this year, hasn't there? Um, uh, Manuel at uh, Mount Mercer has been bailing. He's got a lovely shot of the little, what do you call that, the helping farm dog, the little Jack Russell on top of the big round bale as well. Beautiful photo. Thank you very much for sending that through. Love getting your photos on the country hour when you're out and about too. Always send them through. 0467 842 722. Let's have a look at meat export data. We've got, uh, well, a few lighter stories, I suppose, looking at the loneliest sheep in the world in the UK and a croc attack on an NT cattleman coming up for you. We better look at the serious issues first. Sheep meat exports are set to exceed the record set last year with big increases of shipments to Chinese uh, and Middle Eastern countries, and, and as well as North African markets. There's also been a huge increase in beef exports to North America, taking it from fourth to first in international destinations for Australian beef. But while all of this is going on, producers aren't making much money. There have been huge falls, as you know, at sale yards this year. Tim Jackson is the Global Supply Analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia. He says there's plenty of cause for future optimism for farmers. I suppose in general, the most important part is that exports across the board are up. So beef exports are up 44% from the previous year. Um, Lamb exports are up uh, 17% from the previous year and mutton exports are up 51% from the previous year. And that's really good to see. But in particular, the fact that we're seeing strong demand across just about all of our major export markets And the fact that that demand has held on and grown throughout the year shows that as we produce more red meat, there are people that want to eat it and there is that demand in the international market. And I suppose it's probably no surprise that these figures are so high given that we know there's been such massive throughput through our abattoirs. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen uh, in in the case of, of cattle throughput, we've seen, you know, numbers kind of getting up above where they were last year and the year before. And that's reflected in the export figures. And of course, lamb production last year was at a record high. And we've been going over those numbers this year. And so it would be no surprise that uh, our export figures are going to match those quite high throughput numbers. And looking at some of the key export destinations, starting on beef, exports to Japan, not so strong, but North America, huge growth in the past year. What we've seen this year so far has been a large increase in exports to the United States um, and a large increase to China as well, and then a bit of a decline to exports to Japan. What's really promising here is that exports to the United States are well up on year-ago levels. So the US was our largest beef market um, at about 27,500 tonnes, which was about twice as much as it was last year. At the same time, we've actually seen a year-on-year increase to Japan. 
Okay, that's beef. Let's look at sheep meat. Uh, sheep meat exports overall expected to ex- exceed that record that was actually set just last year. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for this year so far, our lamb exports are sitting at a, a bit over 267,000 tonnes and our mutton exports are sitting at nearly 169,000 tonnes. And both of those are well up on last year. As you said, um, sheep meat exports were at record highs last year, and it looks like we're going to uh, exceed that volume again this year. And again, North America, the the big player in terms of lamb exports? Yeah, well, so we've seen uh, very high volumes into uh, lamb exports into North America. Um, In particular, we've seen surprisingly robust sort of exports into Canada, So North America is a very, very important market and very big. The other thing in in lamb that's really striking um, is the increased volume into China. Volumes are up 14% from last year. And in October, we exported just over 6,000 tonnes into mainland China. And speaking of China, it's a huge market for our export mutton. Absolutely. Um, And and that's become more true this year. So in October, uh, exports were up 57% year on year. And that meant that we exported just over 10,000 tonnes of mutton into mainland China, um, which makes them uh, our biggest mutton market for the month. And I suppose, though, the the disappointing thing for producers listening to that will be that, sure, are great export figures, but they're getting that mutton at a, at a rock-bottom price, aren't they? Well, I think mutton prices at the sale yard, obviously um, sale yard prices for mutton have come back very substantially over the last year. What these figures show is that there is demand on the international market for Australian red meat and for mutton in particular. And a lot of mutton as well going into that uh, Middle East, North Africa region. So we've seen quite a substantial increase um, in exports into the Middle East and North Africa region over the past year or so. So uh, what we've seen broadly this year has been that exports into MENA of mutton have been up 81% on the previous year and lamb exports into the Middle East and North Africa have been up by 50%. That's Tim Jackson, who is Global Supply Analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia, speaking there to Angus Verley. A couple more of your texts coming in. This one from uh, Maggie saying, Hi, Wazza. Heaps of rain and storm damage at Ballarat. We're eight kilometres south. No rain. Can you ask the weather people to send some? Uh, I'll do my best. (laughs) I don't know how good they are at that, but we'll see how we go. We better get some news headlines before we go to the Weather Bureau, though, and we can only do that from Branson Gibson, who's in the regional newsroom today. Good afternoon, Branson. Good afternoon, Warwick. The telecommunication watchdog says businesses affected by Optus's nationwide outage that cut off up to 10 million customers should see compensation from the company. Some retailers, including those in regional Victoria, were forced to turn customers away yesterday as FPOS machines remained offline during the outage. Telecommunications industry ombudsman Cynthia Gabert says it's not good enough for Optus to offer rewards for affected businesses rather than compensation. A Mount Macedon driver at the centre of the Dalesford Royal Hotel pub crash has been released from hospital. On Sunday afternoon, the Mount Macedon man drove an SUV through the beer garden outside the Royal Hotel, 
leading to the deaths of five people from two families and hospitalising six others. Yesterday, the Drivers' Legal Council said the 66-year-old was deeply distressed by the incident and is an insulin-dependent diabetic. The man returned a negative blood alcohol test. No charges have been laid over the crash as the investigation into what happened continues. Parents are being urged to be vigilant near water over summer with a report revealing 549 children have drowned across Australia over the past two decades. Royal Life Saving Australia says 71 children drowned in Victoria with a majority of the drownings happening in swimming pools. Life Saving Victoria's Hannah Calverley says parents need to actively supervise children around water and ensure safety measures like pool gates are in place to restrict children's access to water. Victoria's environmental regulator is reminding the state's northwest that there are serious penalties for illegally burning industrial waste. The EPA has fined Australian Fruit Investment Group more than $9,000 following an investigation into burn-offs at the company's Merbein South premises. Four individuals have also been made to pay almost $2,000 each for burning waste at properties in Irimple, Redcliffs, Mildura and Robinvale. The EPA says burning waste is a health and environmental hazard. And that's the latest ABC News headlines. For more, visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Branson. Branson Gibson there with regional news headlines. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. And you're also with Christy Johnson, who's from the Weather Bureau, the Bureau of Meteorology, to take you through the full forecast for the week ahead. Hi, Christy. Good afternoon, Warwick. How's it looking around regional Victoria this lunchtime? Well, look, it's uh, pretty sunny in the west. We've got some cloud in the east. That's really going to be the story of the day. We should see some showers and possibly some thunderstorms start to develop in the east as we go into the afternoon. Um, there is the potential for... Uh, we've got, well, we've got high to extreme pollen across the state, so obviously just um, highlighting that risk of potential thunderstorm asthma or even with the high pollen, you don't even need thunderstorms. Just asking people to be a little bit careful there um, if they suffer from hay fever. Uh, we are expecting the temperatures to get up to um, around the low 30s up in the Mallee, 20, uh, 34 at Mildura, 32 at Swan Hill. The rest of the state mostly in the high 20s in the north and the low 20s in the south with um, cooler southerly flow at the moment. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, just that, that chance of afternoon showers or thunderstorms in the east is the main story for today. Tomorrow, the winds go northerly across the state and it's our hottest day. Look at getting up to 40 degrees for Mildura into the 30s across most of the state, maybe a little bit cooler along Gippsland uh, where we could see some afternoon sea breezes. Um, the shower and thunderstorm activity should have contracted away to the east, so... A mostly fine day tomorrow. Uh, should be mostly sunny after some morning fog through the south. Um, but on Saturday, we have another trough that's going to move across. Now, this doesn't have a lot of rainfall associated with it. It's more of a wind change. But we could see some high-based showers or thunderstorms um, developing, particularly into the afternoon over the, the eastern part of the state, particularly about the ranges. Um, ahead of that, those uh, northerly winds will be quite fresh and, and warm, so still getting up into the... 30s, even into the high 30s up in the uh, parts of the far north um, and, uh, yeah, around the 
mid-30s, I get uh, low 30s, sorry, high 20s or low 30s elsewhere, a little bit cooler down in the southwest where the wind change will come in earlier. We're just expecting a top of 18 for Warrnambool on Saturday. Um, and as you would then expect with that cool air behind the change, uh, much cooler on Sunday. Should be a mostly fine day. There's just a very slight chance of the odd spot in the south in, in southerly flow. The temperature is dropping back into maybe the high teens in the southwest. The rest of the state mostly in the 20s, low 20s through the south, mid to high 20s in the north. Um, and Monday is pretty similar Maybe the chance of the odd spot uh, here or there in the south, but not much. Temperatures mostly into the uh, low to mid-20s, maybe into the high 20s through parts of the north. We do potentially have some patchy rain coming down from the north on Tuesday. It's a little bit uncertain exactly how that might play out, but there could be a a few millimetres here or there, but not expecting uh, high rainfall totals there. That should tend to contract away on uh, Wednesday and uh, looking reasonably fine for Thursday at this stage. So really today's the most active day with those showers and thunderstorms um, in the eastern half of the state. Uh, The potential for a hot day tomorrow and then uh, that change coming through on Saturday with maybe maybe a little bit of shower or thunderstorm activity, um, but not much in the terms of rainfall totals. And a couple of questions here. Maggie, down at Ross Creek, which is 8K south of Ballarat, was quite disappointed to miss out on the rain slash storms last night. No rain there while Ballarat copped it all. Is there any more chances of uh, thunderstorms around the Ballarat area? Look, probably not much around Ballarat. I think it's going to be east of Ballarat now. Look, it's it's sort of on the edge of where there's a chance, but it's much more likely to, to be further, uh, further east of Ballarat. Certainly, I, I wouldn't expect them to be copping anything like what they had the other day. Uh, we could still see, at the moment, the, the risk of severe thunderstorms is greatest over New South Wales, but it's not entirely out of the question that we could see some heavy rain, isolated heavy rain um, over parts of Victoria, maybe even the odd damaging wind gust. Um, so that's being watched, and obviously warnings will be issued if required, but it's more likely that they'll stay over the border and we'll get thunderstorms, but uh, not expecting them to be quite as severe as they have been at times over the past couple of days. Well, very noisy last night. Uh, Any sort of chance of asthma warnings with those thunderstorms if they come further south? Uh, Look, we we do have um, moderate thunderstorm asthma uh, forecast out. I think at the moment it's for the Northern Country Northeast District, not actually out of the question for the North Central and the Gippsland districts as well. Um, but, yeah, so, look, we could see some gusty winds with thunderstorms, even if they're not reaching those severe criteria. So it's definitely something to be aware of if you do suffer from asthma or from hay fever and just to take precautions um, if there's any storms in your area. But uh, just with that high pollen, it it can't be ruled out um, with any storms that occur. Christy, you're always a wealth of information. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for joining us on the program. Thanks, Warwick. Christy Johnston there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast. On the text line, Michael from Max Creek had 21 millimetres overnight, six the night before. Nice little thunderstorms, says this one. Uh, MLA, what a load of BS. Sell all the meat you like. If farmers aren't being paid, what's the point? How would you like to go? 
uh, to work and not get paid, says this text. And how about finding the prices our export markets are paying for mutton lamb? We have discussed that, and I'm happy to do that on your behalf. This was more specific about the numbers, but there you go. Dave from Dabula wants to know, are the exporters making a fortune or are the prices farmers are receiving a reflection of prices received overseas? Dave, the answer to that is no. Uh, We have spoken recently with episode three it is who do monitoring of how much money processes abattoirs are making they're the big meat exporters and they're they're making a lot more money now than they did last year or the year before in fact uh, uh quite large profit margins at the moment uh, the flip side of that when prices were high for producers uh they were very poor uh for processes is what we were being told off that same data but at the moment uh yes processes making quite substantial profits it is 19 to 1 here on the country out right now work along with you for the program today let's not talk meat for the moment let's talk cherries cherry season in victoria has kicked off this week with people lining up at farm gates for the summer fruit many orchards had to pull out trees last year after extensive flooding in key growing areas around the state but this year the biggest issue Seems to be birds. Bill Hotson has been growing cherries in Chilton for over four decades. He told Annie Brown how the crop's looking this year. Oh, it's a bit up and down this year. We're a little bit disappointed in our crop. Uh, some uh, varieties have set pretty well and others pretty poorly. And so we're a bit disappointed in that. And uh, we'll see. It's right at the start. And uh, uh, the cherries that are coming off right now, we've only been open for business two days, are coming off very well in terms of no weather damage, which is great, but a bit of bird damage. And that's causing a few issues. Oh dear, uh, and uh, so we're, we're addressing that issue as best we can at the moment. So birds have been your biggest problem this year? Uh, this year, uh, not all birds, just crows or ravens. The, we put in an, a, a laser device a couple of years ago to frighten the birds and uh, hopefully that we didn't or don't have to put nets over the trees which causes more work and difficulty picking under it and all that. And uh, it's been pretty effective with other birds but not with the crows. Yeah. Uh, and that's why you might hear the gas gun going but once again they're pretty cunning crows are and uh, so yeah pretty difficult to control bigger issue is lots of rain uh, at cherry harvest time and uh, so um, we've been fortunate this year the cherries that we have are looking really really good uh, no no weather damage there and we hope to keep it that way. And there's new technology uh, in how we treat uh, the trees uh, to prevent splitting. And that works pretty well so long as we keep right up to it. So in terms of rain, like you said, this year it's been very good. It's come at the right time. It's um, helped a lot with the, the growth and the cherries. But last year it was a massive issue for you, wasn't oh. it? Huge. Uh, this time last year uh, we had lots and lots of sp- cherries we had a big crop and uh, so it caused us a, a lot of issues with packing and quality in the early stage of the harvest uh, the later stage of harvest last year turned out really well with large cherries good prices and so on uh, but then following that I suppose you could say we lost a block of uh, a, a trees that were badly affected we pulled out a couple of hundred that died and some others we're trying to uh, look after them that they'll survive but the production at a, at a block this year pretty poor and might take another couple of years to recover. 
You've only been open for a few days. Yes. How many people have you already come to the farm? Oh, lots and lots. Yeah. Uh, they were queuing up uh, on Monday morning when they saw it on Facebook that we were open. And uh, yesterday afternoon was a bit slacker because people were in there watching uh, the Melbourne Cup. Uh, but uh, we've had uh, such a response to that Facebook and uh, we use that quite a lot to keep people up to date on what we've got. They're, they're, um, they're coming off really well. Um, the next variety coming on might be nearly a week away, and it's my favourite cherry. It's not the biggest, it, it's not the firmest, uh, but Merchant is a lot of people's favourite, and the, a lot of people are hanging out for that, but I urge them not to hang out. The ones we've got now are pretty good. <laughs> Quickly on from Merchant, we have Chelan, which is a very firm cherry and a very dark cherry, and uh, it's not my favourite cherry, but other people love it. And last year there was a bit of worry that the volume was a bit down on cherries and mm. you know people love cherries around Christmas especially. Um, this year it's going to be a good, good term in terms of volume, do you think? Um, from our point of view, no, pretty moderate okay. uh, with some of the varieties not setting. Uh, other varieties, good. We've heard reports uh, from Young and Orange that the cherry... While uh, it's early there this year, but the volume, I think, is down. I haven't heard any official reports, and I'm not too sure what's ha- happening down this part of the world or, 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 you know, other parts of Victoria. It's very early, and it's pretty hard to establish prices at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter down in Geelong says they're $35 in the shop, but uh, nowhere near that. We're keeping our prices pretty consistent with the last year at the moment. Uh, we we love people coming here to buy cherries at the farm gate. Uh, they are available at supermarkets around the area, and uh, so uh, we don't have any problem getting rid of our cherries at the moment. It's Bill Hodson, Chilton Cherry Grower, speaking there with Annie Brown with the old bird scarer going off in the background. Now we're moving into a different section of the country. Now we've got sheep, or lonely sheep in Scotland, and croc attacks for cattlemen for you for the next little bit as we head towards the market. We'll start overseas first. Dubbed the loneliest sheep in the world, a rescue mission for a stranded sheep has captured the attention of the UK. There's been a few wild sheep with large amounts of wool caught at various places in the past. We've talked about them quite a lot. They're named like Barak, Victoria, and in a famous case in New Zealand, there was a sheep called Shrek. Well, with Shrek in mind, the rescuers in the Scottish Highlands named this lonely sheep Fiona, after Shrek's girlfriend slash wife. The BBC's Jeremy Vine can pick up the story there. He got an update on the sheep, which isn't without controversy. This weekend, a dramatic rescue took place to save a sheep. The solitary animal was stranded for more than two years at the foot of a cliff in the Scottish Highlands. Fiona the sheep was first spotted after a kayaker photographed her trapped at the foot of a steep cliff and he'd previously seen her in the same place two years earlier so he put two and two together or literally he put two together with zero fiona was dubbed britain's loneliest sheep and an online petition to rescue her attracted thousands of signatures on saturday morning a team of five farmers led by a former police officer abseiled down a 250 foot rocky gully and used a winch to bring her to safety good for them now there's a row about what to do with her next she was sheared and she was supposed to go to a farm park near dumfries called dulscone farm fun and they said they would give her a five-star home and get her some amazing friends 
Then a group of animal activists rocked up who said, wait, we wanted to rescue the sheep and Fiona will be exploited if she goes anywhere where people have to pay to look at her. So they say that Dulskin Farm is a petting zoo. So that's where we are. Nice story and now is an argument. It's like the whole of life. We talk first to Farmer Ben, who runs Dulskin Farm Fun in Dumfries. So I don't know. Well, firstly, Farmer Ben, what's your reaction to the saving of Fiona? Well, it's fantastic, Jeremy. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's a great news story um, at, at the centre of it. And that's that's what we have to focus on. You know, it's um, a wonderful rescue by Cami and the team. They've done a, a fantastic job. They got her up safely. A really dangerous rescue as well. Uh, and they got her up safely, happy, healthy, and she's uh, relocated to her uh, forever home now. Just before we get on to, to where she is now, there will be some people listening who say that if you have five farmers abseiling down a 250-foot gully, someone somewhere is risking a broken back, and then they have to be rescued as well. And then maybe the rescuers have to rescue the rescuers. And, you know, quite soon the thing looks a bit crazy. Yeah, yeah, but no one got injured and everyone returned safely without any hassle. So where is Fiona now? Fiona's with us at Dulscon. Oh, okay, so that hasn't now, it hasn't been stopped by the animal activists? Uh, yesterday morning, so she was due to come to us yesterday around 11 o'clock. So Cami is a friend of mine, he's, uh, he's also involved in, in social media um, and we film our, our farming lives on social media and our, our welfare of the animals is what we're renowned for throughout the world. Um, and he, he phoned me and said, Ben, I think this is, you are the perfect home for Fiona to come to. I've spoke to the farmer and he agrees. He's happy with that. Um, and, and and if you're willing to take her, then uh, I think she would be a really good fit for you. But Cammy's <laughs> rescued her. He's sheared her. He's, um, he's made sure everything's absolutely fine. She had a few ticks, so she's been treated for them. She's actually overweight. Uh, believe it or not, we thought she was going to be really quite underweight, but she's mm -hmm. not. She's overweight. In terms of her daily routine, is she yeah. is she in a petting situation or what? People no. paying to touch that's, her? No, that's we're one of the reasons she's coming here as well is we're closed for the next five months for her off season. Ah. One of the narratives that's been spun by the animal activists is that we're a petting zoo. I can assure you, we're absolutely not. We're a we're a farm park. We are not a petting zoo. And I think you'll find if you look at the animal activist website that you'll actually see that they offer petting experiences for the animals that they rescue. We don't have any members of the public paying to come and see her. She is not going to be exploited in that way. She is only going to be with the farmers for the next five months. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is slowly, slowly integrate her into having a few more friends, having a few more sheep around her. And we're going to handpick those sheep. A lot of the, the sheep that's going to go with her are going to be bottle-fed, uh, were bottle-fed by us. So they're, they're super tame. They've got lovely mannerisms. That is going to suit her just fine. We don't want anyone that's brash and harsh going in with them. We want someone who's nice and placid and everything can remain calm for her. Remember, she's been in a cave for two, two years. That's where she stayed, in a cave at the bottom of these cliffs. That's how she got shelter. So she's not used to animals being around her she's not used to people being around her so everything has to be slowly slowly that is ben from dulskin farm in dumfries speaking to the bbc's jeremy vine there in the uk about the sheep found in a cave after spending two years down a 250 meter cliff face in the scottish highlands uh that has been rescued but as you heard 
in the UK, not without controversy, uh, but we'll continue to keep an eye and see what happens to Fiona from here. It's eight to one here on the country. Uh, let's come closer to home, but not all the way. Go to the Northern Territory where a cattle producer has survived a crocodile attack by literally biting back. Colin Devereaux from Twin Hill Station's been in the Royal Darwin Hospital for about a month after his lucky escape from the jaws of a 3.2 metre saltwater croc. He told Matt Brown he was on his way to do some fencing when he noticed some fish swimming in a billabong that was drying up. He says he stepped into some mud and suddenly this happened. Started walking, took two steps and the dirty bastard latched onto me. My right foot on the instep, sort of, as I threw a foot forward. And it was a big grab, solid, and um, he shook me straight away, shook me like a rag doll, and he took off in the water about three metres, pulled me. When he stopped pretty quick, I jumped in the air and kicked him in the ribs behind the front shoulder with my left foot, which was hard to do because he had all of my foot. But I got a short kick in. And you're in the water at this stage? Yeah, no, I'm in the water, mate. I'm out in the middle there. So um, he's, I kicked him in the ribs and I fell over. When I landed, my left leg went underneath me out the back. I was on my knee, leaning forward, just sort of half accidental, but my head with momentum went down towards his head, his head, and I managed to have a bite. But I was in an awkward position and I actually missed most of what I was biting at. It was all heavy head, heavy bone. And my teeth slipped up and I got all of the eyelids. Probably by accident, I think. And his eyelids they were pretty thick. I mean, it was like holding leather. And I jerked back on that and I had about a second go past and he let go. I just I just leapt away from him pretty awkwardly, but I rolled twice and took off. Just stood up and took off with great steps up towards the billabong where my car was. He chased me, I think, three or four metres, maybe four, but then stopped. I did have a good look over my shoulder, by golly. So anyhow, I roared up to the hen camp, climbed the stairs, wrapped the towel around, I got a bit of telecom rope that was on the veranda and tied it all up tight and managed to get the bleeding stopped straight away. And uh, my brother came out from Berry Springs and got me into Palmerston pretty quick. So that was about it, mate. That was it. Uh, how were you on arrival at the hospital? Was it losing a bit uh, of blood? Yeah, no, I was, no I'd, I'd had all the block of blood stopped with the rope. It was stopped. There was nothing leaking out at all. So I did well there, and um, and I had it up in the dash of the Toyota all the way in, and up high. And it was pretty painful, but it was getting painful by the time I got there. It was, yeah. But it was pretty damaged. So I think it hit two toes. The, what do you call it? The um, tendons that attached to the two first toes. And uh, the skin died in the middle, so they had to pull all the skin off. They bloody put a few staples in right around it, try to keep it all hanging right. And then they, um, oh, some... 14 days later, it took that long. I had mud in it and that. They had to clear all the mud out because of the bad bacteria from the Billabong water itself. Goose shit, duck shit, and crocodile teeth. The crocodile shit and crocodile teeth marks. They were going to be my bacteria around it. Yeah, and this was all in your leg and foot. Yeah, it was. It was brittle, opened up that bad. It was. You could see the black of the silt of the bloody mud in there. And in amongst that mud, this is microbial fungus and that got in there. They reckon, and um, so they had to spend a lot of time. I think it was over nearly ten days flushing it. So it was hard going for a while in here for me. I tell you. And so, and then, how are you uh, now? Are you getting ready to walk out of hospital? 
well, I took the bandage off this morning. I got a skin graft about four days ago, five days ago, from above my knee. I put a big patch across the hole, and I've pulled it up real good, and the whole thing was in good order when we put the skin graft on. Like it was sort of joined together with all the staples and that. And they just laid a big skin patch over top of the holes, which was all pulled together really good. And um, pulled the bandage off this morning, and the grass was sitting on there real good. And you a little bit of piebald colours on it, but the old doctor reckoned it was very, very um, heartening to look at so far. So you got your leg? You got your five toes? Yeah, I have, mate. I'm not sitting here with my foot up, and I'm um, <laughs> I'm bending my toes. Yeah, and they reckon they might let me out. Have another look at it tomorrow, and they might let me out tomorrow. Mm, I was pretty crooked there for a while. I had someone call me and say, you've got to speak to Colin Devereaux. Got attacked by a croc and bit the thing back. Well, I had no choice. Yeah. I had no choice. And it all happened, like I said, in about eight seconds I worked it out. It wasn't long, but just the way things rolled. If he had to bit me somewhere else, it would have been different, I think. But he, was, he ended up being 11 foot long, and he was really in his prime. He was fat as a fool. He won't be doing it again. So you reckon 11 but, foot, what, th- three and a half metres or so? About 3.2, I think. I don't know, sure. But anyhow, it means I've got to change what I do. I've been walking around in too much water for a long time out in that swamp country, fixing fences and just living life. And um, I opened my eyes up. We're looking down on that dirty bastard. Um, he had everything in his way. You couldn't see him. And obviously he was serious. I shouldn't have went out that far. I had a gun in the car, but when I was thinking about it, the gun wouldn't have helped as a rifle. It wouldn't have helped. It was too too long and too awkward, you know, how he, how he bit me. And too quick, mm. I'd imagine. Yeah, it was. It was nasty. Could have got me arm or my guts, you know. So I'm a changed man. I'm going to change what I do. <laughs> We've had so many people calling up wanting to know how you are, Colin. So it's been lovely to hear your story. I'm so pleased we're here talking to you because this could have ended terribly. <laughs> <laughs> it could have. Yeah. It could have. That's Colin Devereaux, who's getting ready to walk out of hospital after a croc attack in the Northern Territory last month. Where else but the the country out do you get those stories as well? Amazing to hear that from Colin. And as Matt Brand said, uh, so good that he's around to tell the story. We better get to markets. Let's go to Wagga Lambs and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. 40,000 lambs and 14,000 sheep sold to a small group of domestic and export processors. Quality was fair to very good in places. However, it was noticeable that the yarding lacked weight, falling in mostly to two categories, those in store condition and those weighing between 20 to 26 kilo. Competition was weaker because southern markets have commenced their selling season and as a result, Prices declined five to ten dollars. Twenty to twenty-four kilo, eighty-two dollars to one hundred and eighteen, averaging four hundred and seventy-five cents a kilogram carcass weight. Twenty-four to twenty-six, one ten to one thirty-four. Twenty-six to thirty, one thirty-four to one forty-five, averaging four hundred and seventy-three cents a kilogram carcass weight. Store lambs with weight and frame, fifty dollars to seventy-one. Lambs to feed on topped at one hundred and fifteen, and light lambs to the processors, forty-one dollars to eighty. Reno lambs $32 to $70 and hoggets $45 to $70 with the sheep yet to be sold, Leanne Dax MLA. And that's it for the country. I hope you have a great afternoon. Talk to you tomorrow. It's one o'clock.